Brandon Steiner, and this is Unplugged with Brandon Steiner. Welcome, Brandon Steiner. You're on my pod, and I've got a phenomenal guest. You know I love talking baseball, and we have Jason Turbo with us. Who's This is actually his third book, and I wanted to talk about the first one, which was the baseball codes, but we're going to have to get to that. I'm teasing that because everybody wants to know who's stealing signs and stealing all these codes. But the latest book that he's written, They Bleed Blue. The second book, by the way, Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic. We'll get into a little of that, too. That was about the uh, Oakland A's. And I, I just love that team. Raleigh Fingers and the, all, all the craziness that went around with Reggie and Charlie Finley's, all his shenanigans with promotions, I'm sure he covered in that book, I would imagine. But before we get to that, first of all, welcome, Jason. You know, I love talking baseball. Uh, we cover it all here, 360. Um, welcome to the pod, and thanks for taking a few minutes. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brandon. Now you're you're a complete freelance; like you're all over. Like you you really can legitimately write about who you want and when you want about any time you want to write about it. Well, so long as I can convince a publisher to pay me to do it, yeah, <laughs> the answer True. is yes. But there's there's a, li- a little more in- involvement than that. Uh, it's it, it's a good way to good way to go. I I'm you know I'm, I'm blessed every day to be able to kind of delve into baseball history because i i only i just mentioned just because we always talk a lot about entrepreneurship and i I really look at you as an entrepreneur in a lot of ways because you're talking usually about subjects that not necessarily have been talked about and it just seems like you're writing about stuff that is a little bit outside the box yeah you know i i i am really interested in this stuff and i've been uh lucky that i've found publishers to this point that kind of agree with my vision for books and as long as I continue to string book contracts together, I'm, <laughs> I'm able to make it happen. So, so you're, uh, uh, before we get into the Bleed Blue, are you already working on your next book? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tease it. I'm just curious. Is it kind of like that? You're always working on a new book? Yeah, absolutely. The, the the next the next iron and is actually several irons in the fire at the same time. Uh, I've just got to roll contracts into one another. Well, let's talk about the uh, Bleed so, Blue for a minute, just because I assume you definitely did some serious talking with. Tommy Lasorda and Oral Hershiser. Was Oral Hershiser in this mix at this point or not really? This was Hershiser more... no, he was not yet there. He was in the minor leagues at that point. This was this was, you know, Fernando Valenzuela, his his rookie year of, of Fernando Mania and you know, Jerry Royce and Bert Hooten filled out that pitching staff and Dusty Baker and, and the storied infield of Steve Garvey and Davey Lopes and Bill Russell and Ron Say. Well maybe one uh, of the great Mike... infields maybe of all time. That's a oh yeah, for sure. The, the the most durable infield. Yeah. They they were together nearly nine seasons, which is about twice as long as the next most durable infield. They they had some uh, you know amazing on field chemistry, <laughs> even if they didn't have particularly good off field chemistry. Amazing. I mean, that was the Yankee Dodger rivalry. But why'd you write this book? Why'd you pick? Why'd you decide to do a book on the Dodgers in, in, at this particular period of time? What what struck a chord? And what 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 is it that's going to interest us to want to read it? Well, there's there's a lot of really interesting storylines that run through this season. Uh, one is that it was a strike year. Uh, the, the players went on strike midway through the, the year, which ended up causing a, what's known as the split season, right? Baseball decided the way to handle it was to crown a first-half champion and a second-half champion. The Dodgers won the first half, did not win the second half. Uh, the, the intrigue behind that is is very interesting. It's the rise of Fernando, this kid out of a dusty truck farm in Mexico who showed up in LA the previous September at age 19, literally nobody know in LA knowing his name outside of, you know, a, a few people in the Dodgers organization. He ended up starting opening day for the Dodgers as a 20 year old 
because of a, a spate of injuries to the pitching staff and threw a shutout against the Houston Astros. Uh, his next start, he pitched a complete game. His next start, he pitched another shutout. He was, his he next was start, like he pitched another Gooden. shutout. I mean, just we have a lot of New York fans on this, and this is a little. He was a little Dwight Gooden like. Everybody stopped when he was pitching. He was kind of a phenom, right? I mean, he was a lot, a lot no of no question, no question. Except he was he was far less known than Dwight Gooden was when he showed up. And after his first eight starts of his career, he was eight and zero with seven complete games and five shutouts and a zero point five zero ERA. And and the entire country was paying attention. Why this mattered in Los Angeles was because Dodger Stadium had been built on land that was seized from a pretty vibrant Mexican community. Right, this this large this large group of people was was kicked off its property. It was cleared out, and the Dodgers moved in. And ever since then, in the late '50s and early '60s, the Dodgers could not attract a Mexican fan base in Los Angeles which was notable because there were more Mexicans living in L.A. County than anywhere in the world outside of Mexico City. And the Dodgers knew it. And they were, you know, Al Campanis, their general manager, said repeatedly, I, I need to find the Mexican Sandy Koufax. And what he meant by that was a guy to activate Mexicans the way that Sandy Koufax had activated Jews. But they couldn't do it until Fernando came along. And all of a sudden, by the, by the middle of his, his great beginning run, there were mariachi bands playing in the grandstand at Dodger Stadium. It, it was, was one big fiesta, and everyone was loving it. And having talked to a it, bunch of people, did they throw him too much? That, you know, there's that rumor that he they, they, that he pitched too much too early, and why his career didn't get extended. True in your mind? Did a lot of people agree or disagree. Did this even come up in the book and in the conversation? Yeah, that, it seems pretty irrefutable. I mean, he threw a lot of innings. I mean, literally. I mean, just look at that for those first eight games. He, th- he threw seven complete games, and the one game he didn't complete, he went nine innings, and the game went extras. Right? He, he didn't get a lot of rest right up to the moment that the players went on strike, but he nonetheless led the league in innings pitched uh, and continued to, to be among the league leaders for, for many years thereafter. And he was, I mean, he was unbelievably effective when he was young and spry, but his, his arm definitely gave out on him uh, far earlier than it should have. I know you had a lot of fun talking with Tommy Lasorda. What did you get from those conversations, anything that hadn't been talked about, because he seems to talk about everything, but, and obviously you can talk about bleeding blue, that's Tommy Lasorda. That's Tommy Lasorda. That's where the phrase came from. I mean, he, he was, he was fond of proclaiming that he bled Dodger blue. He constantly talked about the big Dodger in the sky. Uh, you know, he, he, his goal, his strength as a manager was to make everybody believe he <laughs> as firmly as he believed. And and it worked out for him in the sense that he spent eight years as a minor league manager for the Dodgers before they ever called him up to the big leagues. And during those eight years, he got his hands on the vast majority of the guys who would lead him to the World Series in 1981. And Garvey, Lopes, Russell, Say, Jaeger all played for him in the minors. These guys knew how he operated. They knew his kind of his rah-rah cheerleader attitude. And... You know, when when Tommy was promoted to the big leagues as the third base coach under Walter Alston, a lot of people said his attitude wouldn't play in the majors. Like you can't be that that vociferously uh, cheerleading the way he was. But as a third base coach, it played. And when he took over from Alston in '77, people said that will never play as a manager. And well, guess what? It also played there, and it was it played because 
his players knew him already. They knew what to expect, uh, and and they knew they knew how pure his heart was, and and it worked, man. He was the right guy for that team at the right time, and and instantly took his team to the World Series. It was it was kind of a remarkable introduction. Who was the surprise in this book? Who who had a bigger impact on this team, and who who had a. a, a... I mean, I, you, 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 there's actually a lot of personalities there that went on to coach, manage. But any surprises there that, you know, kind of went with Steve Garvey or Lopes or anybody that really was? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of things were happening with this team. A lot of the guys didn't get along particularly well. I mean, for, for as great as the infield played together, most of them really didn't like each other very much off the field and went their own separate ways. Um you know, people people resented Steve Garvey's good guy image, and oh Davy Lopes was prickly, and Ron Say was prickly, and they they played well despite it. But what I heard from everybody, and I mean everybody, was the guy that held that club together was Dusty Baker. No surprise there, right? We can see we can see where he's gone since those days. He's he's gone on to become a manager of multiple franchises with great success, with the common thread being. He got the most out of his guys. I mean, even even if he had, you know, uh, if, even if he wasn't the greatest tactician, as, as Lasorda wasn't the greatest tactician, um, his his strength of personality was enough to overcome it in in great ways. I mean, look look, look at the Nationals. He took them to the playoffs. They fired him, and they've been terrible ever since. Right? The Dusty's the strength of Dusty is uh, is n- not something to to doubt or debate. You know, I agree with you there. I mean, I think he's actually an unsung hero. Was a good, good baseball man, and somehow, the whole managerial thing these days—that's that's like a whole nother book and another conversation. Because I'm not sure it even matters. I don't, I don't know if it even matters who manages these teams anymore, as long as you get your analytics. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of personality. You rarely see a manager come out and argue, get thrown out these days, let alone kicking some dirt. I miss that stuff, man. You know, it's kind of part of the game, and they they kind of. They've kind of frowned upon it, but you don't see a lot of managers. They, they've got that Stonewall Joe Torre face, which worked for him. You know, they don't want to show any emotion. They don't want to show up a player. They don't want to look frustrated because the guy just walked, the bases loaded. I mean, I'd be frustrated. I'd be spitting and pissing. But it doesn't seem Yeah, like- well, I, you know, that was one of Dusty's great strengths as a manager. And I covered the Giants very frequently when, when he was managing here in San Francisco is that he would be as frustrated as anybody with, with his players, but he would let that out behind closed doors. Like he was a guy to take a media bullet for any member of his team at any time, which took the pressure off them, which helped them succeed, which also helped them to love him all the more. And so there, there are lots of subtle things that, that managers like Dusty can do that, you know, I, I agree with you that we're seeing less and less uh, in the modern game. What do you think the key was to that, uh, that, that dynasty as far as the actual winning who was who was carrying that team on the field obviously fernando was obviously carrying him on the mound but uh was there one particular where were the streaks in that season where where were the hot hot bats well the streak came very early they they shot out of the gate thanks to fernando they were something like 14 and three over the first couple weeks uh two and a half weeks and and never relinquished that that early lead The, the interesting part about this team is they had 18 guys on that roster who at some point or another made an all-star team in their careers. Six of them in 1981 alone, but there were no Hall of Famers. Right? It was it was a evenly distributed 
uh, batch of talent. They had, they, they had capable players up and down the roster, even if none of them dominated at a Hall of Fame level. Um, so they got out to this great hot start. And toward the end of May and early June, they began to regress a little bit. They lost some games. They went on a, a run where they, they went five and nine. And during that streak, Cincinnati was coming on strong. And the Reds had cut what was a six and a half game lead down to one half game when the strike hit. All right, the Dodgers had just lost two of three in St. Louis. Jerry Royce you know, pitched a, a heck of a complete game for their lone victory. And that lone victory was the difference between them winning the World Series and them not even making the playoffs. Because if the strike had been called for even one day later, there's a good chance the Reds would have caught the Dodgers. And the Dodgers never would have won, won that first half pennant. Because in the second half, they were going along fine until Ron Say got his arm broken by a pitch in San Francisco. He missed the last three weeks of the season. The Dodgers went from 100 win pace in the second half of the season to 100 loss pace without him and finished about four games back. Missed the second half title entirely and, and would have gotten knocked out of the, the playoff chase altogether had they not you know, been locked in when the strike hit. So that, that hot start really made all the difference for the Dodgers. What's your take on the three-way MVP in the World Series? That, <laughs> what were the guys' take on that? Were they were they feeling slighted because one of them really felt they should have gotten it, or were they kind of happy for each other? No, they're happy for each other. I mean, for for any amount of antipathy in that clubhouse, they were all professionals. Uh, and and you know, to be fair, no one no one really stood out that much. Guerrero's numbers were largely built over the last couple games. You know, Say's Say's numbers were built. You know, him having come back from that broken arm, not until the National League Championship Series against the Expos just days earlier. And also he was beamed by Goose Gossage uh, midway through the series. It gave him a concussion. He, he was he was knocked out of action and came back at the very end. Uh, the, you know, the one guy who was disappointed was Garvey, and justifiably so, because he, he hit over 400 in that series. Uh, problem was, he didn't drive in any runs because nobody was on base when he came up to bat. Uh, and, you know, in his mind, he's won the the regular season MVP. He's won the NLCS MVP. He's won the All-Star Game MVP. That's the only MVP he never won. And, uh, and, and I think he feels that 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 kind of hole in his trophy shelf, uh, <laughs> at, at least somewhat acutely. I could see that, though. It's, it's fair. It's fair. I mean, yeah, it's not. Great. Yeah. I mean, in fact, there's there's kind of a funny story that right after the Dodgers were coming off the field, uh, their publicist, Steve Brenner, had heard that Steve won the MVP and told Garvey to go up to that podium and, and collect a reward, except they were talking about Steve Yeager. <laughs> and so Garvey actually ended up on the MVP podium until the folks from you know, the NBC TV said, actually, it's not you. you got to go away. And he, I mean, he handled it with grace. It was, it was not an issue. What was Sochi's role in all this? I mean, as far as his leadership, I mean, you've got a, like a, a bunch of managers and coaches and definitely names and guys that moved on to second careers. I don't know if there's a team that's got more of that. When you look at Dusty Baker, obviously Lasorda's tenure, Garvey, I mean, running companies. Um, wow, even Jay Johnstone was on that. Was Jay Johnstone on that team? Jay Johnstone was on that team, yeah. Oh I mean, you can even look God. at guys like Davey Lopes and Ron Renneke, right. who went on to be major league managers. They, they had four big league managers come off that roster. Uh, and in the 2002 World Series, one of Lasorda's players, Sosha, beat another of Lasorda's players, Dusty Baker. And it, I mean that's that's a testament to the power of Tommy Lasorda. I mean he he fostered some some great minds. What was Sosha's role and in all this? He, he was I mean he was a young guy. 
when that season started, they had a three-way catcher platoon going with, with Steve Yeager, Mike Sosha, and Joe Ferguson. And Ferguson was around because he could, he could hit. And he was, and he was Tommy Lasorda's favorite from the time he was a minor leaguer. Lasorda loved having him around. Uh, they eventually had to bite the bullet and release Ferguson midway through the year because he just wasn't performing. But even with Jaeger and, and Sosha, who was in his second season, it was quite a combination. It was a righty-lefty platoon. And you know they, they got their starts based on, on the handedness of the pitcher they were facing. What Sosha had working for him, and back then in addition to everything we know. Come again? No, I was saying back then there was a lot of that ro- you know that rotation thing with the lefty righty. Yeah, as much for sure. Not now then. For sure. But you were saying. Well, Sosha, what Sosha had going for him, uh, apart from what we already know about him, how he was the best plate blocker in big league history, which was something that surprised me. He had that reputation when he reached the big leagues. All his minor league managers were raving about it. So this this guy has always been a, a backstop beyond compare. But he was the guy who really handled Fernando. He spoke a little bit of Spanish, and Jaeger didn't. And he and Fernando got on the same wavelength uh, very quickly. And y- you could see in, you know, in, in one of the World Series games, Jaeger started. Fernando did not do well at all. Uh, the Yankees made a pitcher switch. So, so Lasorda inserted Sosha, and instantly Fernando settled down. And you know, it's it's not that Jaeger was doing anything wrong per se, just that Fernando was much more comfortable uh, p- pitching to a guy like Mike Sosha. And just on your testimonials in the back of the book, Dusty Baker says, "1981 was a special but strange year. Baseball strike in the middle of the season, my first All Star appearance, and a championship." My question is, when he says it was a strange year, was it because of the strike, or was it something else that was even even more strange than that? No, it was mainly because of the strike, and especially for the Dodgers, the strike was difficult. Uh, they had Davey Lopes on the team, who was for, forever the most outspoken of the Dodgers, and you know, if not the most outspoken of all baseball players. And he had his doubts about the rationale behind striking. He really wanted to go back to playing baseball, and he was outspoken about that at some very inopportune times. Uh, he the players were, were convening for meetings across the country, and Davey granted an interview to a local L.A. area paper where he questioned everything. He questioned baseball's leadership. He questioned the player reps. He questioned his own player rep, who was Jerry Royce. And what he didn't know is they were actually very close to settling. Like the, the owners were about to capitulate on many fronts and get these guys back to playing ball, but suddenly they saw a crack in, in the veneer, right? <laughs> this ball player is... is outspokenly talking against the union, well, maybe we, we have a chance. And suddenly negotiations were set back five steps. And a lot of, a lot of players, even on the Dodgers, were upset with Davey. And to Davey Lopes credit, he went into the ensuing players meeting in Los Angeles. They, they hosted these meetings across the country. Uh, the one in LA attracted many players and Davey addressed them and he apologized for his stance. He it had been explained to him exactly how much damage he had done. Uh, he he got himself informed of all the issues, and he he subsequently uh, told the press what we're doing is correct, and we're going to hold out for as long as it takes. And that was pretty much all it took. The strike was was settled shortly thereafter. Talk to me about the baseball codes. We got to go back to that. I always have a curiosity. And does that does that does that book and that conversation still come up? And what tone did that set? the fact of coming up with a book like that about sign stealing and and bench clearing brawls, which doesn't happen that much anymore. But 
I, you know what's a sh- what's astonishing to me, uh, Jason, is that how many pitchers admit to beating players? Admit to saying many. I threw it. I threw Not it. many. Well, that's I mean that's one of the unwritten rules. I mean, guys will intentionally throw at each other, but you're not supposed to admit it for the for the primary reason being once you admit to your crime, the league office has has little choice but to suspend you. Right? You can you can claim innocent intent. You can claim that the ball slipped and you didn't mean anything, and and no one can definitively prove you otherwise unless you unless you confess to, to this crime that that is a suspendable offense. So you almost never hear people do it. Uh, no, the I'm other reason about, you don't I'm do it is that you end up admit really... 10 years later. You know, I, I've like interviewed Dwight Gooden admitted that he threw at people that he couldn't get out that pissed them off. Sure. And that, that's something he might admit after, after his career, but he's not going to go to the media that night and say, yeah, I, I couldn't get him out. So I drilled him. I mean, I, I've, I've had a number of pitchers tell me that they would, they would throw at guys for that reason. But, but, and on a contemporary level, I mean, you don't you don't want to piss off your opponents like that. I mean, if, if Dwight Gooden is playing a really good Astros team, and and he he hits Glenn Davis because he can't get him out, not that he ever did that. I'm, I'm pulling names out of the the hat. Uh, I don't think he wants to to anger Glenn Davis or the rest of the Astros. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm just I'm just saying. There's been two or three pitchers now that have said to me, David Wells, like we were talking. I definitely threw it a couple people purposely, knowing. Sure. That. I mean, I just, I just never, don't think of that that as a fan. But I guess that there's like an underlying code that you know, at some point, if you piss off people, you're getting thrown at. Well, there, I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons to throw at a guy, uh, and this is not me endorsing <laughs> any of those reasons. But there's there's a couple of reasons that pitchers use. Go ahead. Uh, one is one is because he's put your own teammates in danger, right? And uh, spikes up slide into second base. Right, you're you're endangering my guy. It's up to the pitcher to show his clubhouse he has their back. If you're going to endanger my teammates, I'm going to make you pay for it. Right, that which which will hopefully keep you from doing that in the future. Uh, another reason, which is no longer really a reason, is showboating. You know, if guys would flip their bats 20 years ago or admire home runs, sometimes they'd get thrown at. Not always, but sometimes. And and the third reason, and this is a tactical reason is if a guy is having success. It's not that you want to drill him necessarily, but you want to make him uncomfortable. Right? The, the more a, a batter is thinking about a pitch that might be coming his way, the less he's thinking about hitting that pitch. And that doesn't even take drilling him per se, just throwing it well inside and forcing him to move his feet and get out of the way. And that's something pitchers still do. And, and, and you know, they might not talk about it on the record so much, but, but even then, you, you'll see these kind of, illusions in post-game quotes about how how he just wanted to back him off the plate a little bit and and that's the intent behind it so that's what I, Dwight Gooden said I just read him because I just couldn't get him out and he, he just so <laughs> well there's also that yeah just and some some out. guys were just mean <laughs> you know you hear about you hear about the guys who were ordered to intentionally walk someone and just buried one in their ribs instead you know why why take four pitches to do what I can do in one that's what Stan Williams the, the old Dodger pitcher told me many years ago um, how about your other book uh, about the Oakland A's? What was that about, and and you know what was the surprising? You know, give me a little bit, of, a little bit of a tease on that. If you're an Oakland A's baseball fan, that's got to be a fascinating story. Oh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating story if you're not an Oakland A's baseball fan. I feel like this, people don't give the A's be- enough. I mean, everything you know, I talk about the Yankees, the Dodgers, but the A's really. That was a really period of time they really dominated and had a lot to say about a lot, a lot of the way baseball was going to go. 
Yeah, this is the only team in baseball history other than the Yankees to ever win three straight championships. 72, 73, 74. This was an all-time great team. Uh, and and they were they were transformative in a way that had never really been seen before. This was a team that brought in day glow colors and white spikes and facial hair. There was no facial hair in baseball before Reggie Jackson decided to wear a mustache uh, in the 1972 season. And you know when, when his teammates saw it, they were appalled. They didn't they didn't want a mustache on their team any more than baseball management did. They knew that their owner Charlie Finley uh, probably might not even notice, so they decided they would all grow their own mustaches. Finley would have to notice, and he'd order everyone to shave. Well, Finley did notice, and he was struck by it. And he immediately said, anyone with a mustache by the date of the team picture in June will get a $300 bonus, to which pitcher Ken Holtzman said, for $300, I will grow hair on my feet. And and suddenly, they're, you know, they're ushering in a, a brand new sartorial era in baseball that that September, that October, against the Reds in the World Series, it became known as the Hares versus the Squares. And, and they dominated okay. on the field. This, I mean, for all, for all that the Dodgers I wrote about in 81 didn't like each other, these A's really didn't get along. I mean, there were fistfights in this clubhouse on a regular basis. And somehow they fed off it. I, somehow they, they used it for fuel to, just to do more and to do better. And part of the reason they fought so much is because they had an intolerance for flagging attention. They would ride each other mercilessly, sometimes about trivial stuff like you know the, the pants someone wore to the ballpark or somebody's hat. But frequently, it was about what happened on the field. If you, if you let your attention flag and, and misplayed a ball, you would hear about it in the clubhouse afterward, and you wouldn't hear about it from one guy. You would hear about it from multiple guys. And... You would hear about it so thoroughly that sometimes, you know, these big egos got scuffed and fists would start to fly. And, and there were two things that held this team together through, through really was an awful lot of, of intra-team fighting. One was their captain, Sal Bando, who everyone respected to no end. And the other was the fact that for as much as they hated everybody on the team, potentially, they all hated the owner more than that. Right, they, they had that in common. Why? They, they, they couldn't stand Charlie Finley. He was cheap. He, he wouldn't pay uh, even the most minimal bills. They, you know, they had a, a coin-op soda machine in their dugout, in their clubhouse. They, he, he, he took away so much of, of you know, the extras that he had given early on. Um, and it's because they, they turned their back on him in 1973 when he tried to fire Mike Andrews, second baseman Mike Andrews, off the World Series roster. I mean, New Yorkers might remember this from way back in the day because the A's were playing the Mets. Mike Andrews made a couple of key errors in game two of the 1973 World Series, and Finley literally fired him. He tried to, like, phony up some injury claim so he could get a minor leaguer, a guy named Manny Trio, who went on to his own big league career, onto the roster. And the players revolted. They knew that if, if Finley could fire a guy for making errors – he could fire anyone for making errors. And, and they found out about it as they were flying to New York for game three, and they landed in New York, the media capital of the country, and they spent the next two days slagging their owner for his underhanded ways to any reporter who would listen. Now, did you get and, an opportunity to meet, meet up with uh, Finley? And, and put it in well, his... Finley's been dead since the 90s, but I've, you know, I talked to one of his sons. I, I've talked to many people who knew him. And they, they all have the same, the same kind of response, right? The guy was a genius in many ways. He was a self-made millionaire. 
He served as his own general manager very capably. Uh, but he was most mostly concerned with uh, not only accruing credit, but seizing it for himself. You know, he would take every every successful idea as his own, no matter where it came from. And you know, when when one of his media relations guys early on got Vita Blue on the cover of, of a major magazine, Finley was angry, not because Vita was getting credit, but because it wasn't Charlie Finley on the cover of the magazine. And that's just kind of the guy he was. Uh, and and he went from giving them the most lavish World Series rings in history when after they won in 72, they had, I mean, Finley started to set the standard for these these crazy giant rings we, we know now. In 1973, after the team had turned on him, there was no diamond at all. There was a, a piece of green glass on the ring. You know, people compared it to a, a ring you'd find in a Cracker Jack box. And, and that was really indicative of where the relationship went. What was the demise of this team? What, where was the beginning of the demise of this team? Is when, when Reggie walked or when a Catfish went free agent? Or was it just a whole series of things? Well, the demise of the team came about because free agency started, right? It, it, after the 74 season, uh, free agency was a brand new game. It, it for the first time in history, players had a say in their own careers and where they ended up. They had a little bit of power. And Charlie Finley was not willing to recognize that power. He was a guy who thrived on calling every single shot in his organization. I mean, he was his own general manager. He was his own marketing manager. He didn't like, he didn't like giving up power. And he certainly wasn't going to give up power to his players. So he wouldn't play that game. He had the horses and, to go at least another three or four years with some serious winning. Oh my God! This the, the team when it won its last World Series in 1974. Every key player was under 28. They had many years left, but Finley wouldn't pay them, and for for many circumstances they ended up walking. And you can see across the country in New York, George Steinbrenner was a guy who embraced the New World Order. Right? He loved free agency because he he was happy to spend, and he immediately won back-to-back World Series using Charlie Finley's two best players, Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter. It was, it was really kind of a, a sad end to the, to the drama. I mean, Finley tried to trade two of his players, Raleigh Fingers and, and Joe Rudy, to the Red Sox. Not for, not for players, but for cash. Right? He just straight up put them up to the highest bidder. Uh, these guys were on the Red Sox for you know, a little bit under a week. They, they, the commissioner never let them take the field and eventually reverse the, the deal. You can't just go buy players in, in the middle of a pennant race. Uh, but that's what Finley was doing. He knew his team was, was going to end up being terrible anyway, so he just tried to get rich in the process. It's insane when you think about it, really. I mean, they really could have easily gone and done maybe even five in a row with, when you think about what they just let walk right out the door and not get anything back. No, and it wasn't no crazy, question. crazy money back then. It was that what these guys were asking. There was a lot, but it wasn't crazy. No, it, it wasn't crazy, yeah. um, but it was crazy to Charlie Finley because it was, you know, many factors higher than they had been making. All right, there were, there were each each of the players who walked in that free agent year had put had put contract offers on Finley's desk at the beginning of the season, and he summarily ignored them, and they ended up signing for many many times that amount after the season ended. So it's, it's I mean he could have he could have had this team together for a relative bargain compared to. What, what the rest of baseball is paying. But there, and the reality is, is this, this team would have been fascinating even if it was not a three-time consecutive champion. The, fa- the fact that it was you know, the, best, the best team of its era 
makes the story all the better. I wish they would do a third, more than a thirty for thirty on some of the stuff that went on there, because you don't see a lot of it, considering how far back they go and all these thirty for thirties and everything else. And it really was a fascinating, fascinating period of time when this team dominated and and also sent a lot of really good players. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of good players on that team that ended up going to help other teams win. You mentioned Catfish, but there were others too. Hey, Jason, thank, it was great talking with you. Good catching up. Good luck with uh, They Bleed Blue. Uh, I'm going to give this a read. I'm a big Tommy Lasorda fan. I get to work with him a lot. and um, I, I know the I know the job and, and what he accomplished is amazing because sometimes he, he did it with a lot of spit, glue. Sometimes he had the talent. But even, even the Kirk Gibson, when you think about that story, and then you know beating those Yankees back was not easy. Those were good teams they were beating. Absolutely, absolutely. And he 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 had a way with players, yeah. and you know, even those who didn't like him respected him, and yeah. that's that's the thing, the best thing you could say about a manager. Well, good luck with this book. Um, appreciate you coming on board. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure we promote this thing. Is uh, we have a lot a lot of baseball fans that love these stories, especially love going back and talking about these things. So, and it does bring up fond memories. Uh, thanks for your time. Good luck. I assume you can pick this book up on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the good places. Anywhere books are sold, it comes out on June 4th. If you're in Los Angeles, I'll be doing a reading at Diesel Books on opening night. I believe there will be tequila present. Uh, and if you're interested in, in keeping up with the unwritten rules, I blog about it all the time at BaseballCodes.com. This is, this is a topic that never gets old. Is that where you're most active, on BaseballCodes.com, or you're on Facebook, yeah. LinkedIn? No, it's, it's, it's BaseballCodes.com or, cool. or Twitter, at BaseballCodes. Cool. All right, have a great day. Thanks for joining. We'll talk soon. All right, great talk. And this is Unplugged with Brandon Steiner.